today on Ag News Daily. Good Wednesday morning, listeners. We're here August 24th. I know we talked about telling them what date it was in case they picked the episode up, but we didn't really follow through. So Wednesday, August 24th, Tanner Winterhoff here hosting alongside Delaney Howell. How's Delaney doing? I'm good, Tanner, and I want to remind our listeners that we are brought to you this morning by Mystic Lubricants. For a full look at their range of top quality products, visit mysticlubes.com, and that's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. I'm doing well, Tanner. It's a nice, sunny morning. Yeah, not too bad. And besides the fact that my office is shaking, they're tearing the street up next to us. So if you hear anything that sounds remotely like a a thumping or like Thumper from the movie Bambi, (laughs) that's what's going on. I have noticed that a little bit this morning. Is it making you feel like you're in the middle of an earthquake? Yeah, uh, it's weird when your pen moves on your desk and you didn't touch it. (laughs) maybe there's ghosts in your office tanner oh we can only hope wouldn't that be entertaining that would be something yeah well first piece of news that i have is good news last friday lumber prices were reported to have dropped below 500 dollars per thousand board feet for the first time in over a year that marked a 67 percent decrease from the peak in january that was well above 1300 dollars per thousand board feet so Long-awaited decline, we have had a lot of our listeners looking to build, whether it's primary residence or ag buildings, and lumber is finally coming back down. So that decline is a result of the housing market steadily returning to normal. Obviously, there was a significant boom in the wake of COVID-19 and low interest rates, but now factors are driving up the pricing of housing and construction, mainly due to inflation and rising mortgage rates. So historic levels with lumber topping out more than $1,700 per thousand board feet. We didn't get there at our peak in January, but now happy to see that lumber prices have come back down. It'll be interesting now to see what it would cost to build a new barn. Yeah, it certainly would be. Or build a new house because I think a lot of people that I know of actually, uh, you know, got maybe to a point where they were starting construction or they'd gotten bids and things just went crazy. So it wasn't a great time for that, Tanner. But as we look at yesterday's results from the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, we had yield estimates for the rest of Nebraska come in at a 158. 13% 13% behind 2021, which is at, which was at a 182. Uh, they said scouts counted 140 to 150 bushels per acre and some fields down roughly 30, 35 bushels compared to 2021. And Nebraska's soybean data came in at um, about 698 pods compared to 801 from 2021. So also down about 13% year over year, even noting though that, you know, as had said that he thought soybean data did look better on the first stint of day one, we'll be chatting with him again tonight to air on tomorrow's podcast. And in the Eastern leg, Indiana corn data came in also slightly below 2021 
at a 177, down 8% from 2021, Tanner, which was at a 193. Whereas soybean pods were at a 517 compared to 552 in 2021. So down just slightly 6%, but fairly close as far as soybean pod counts go, 22 compared to 21. So today marks day three, and we'll be sure to share Ted's comments on the podcast tomorrow. Yeah, no kidding. I had seen that data myself and was quite surprised. I mean, uh, we knew that the Nebraska region was dry. Uh, I think there was reports that in some areas as little as 5% of the normal rain amount had fallen. But the context that I had in the Indiana direction had been receiving some timely rains and turned off dry late. So I wonder if it's a filling issue rather than that of uh, adequate moisture during the regular part of the growing season. I've got a couple of pieces in my news today, Delaney, that are related to government funding. We will start off first here with the USDA announcing to help organic farmers. The USDA unveils a $300 million initiative to spur organic production. So the Organic Transition Initiative is funded in part by the American Rescue Plan. That plan was revealed Monday to provide opportunities for new and beginning farmers to transition into organic production, boost their income potential, and expand direct-to-consumer access to organic foods. Of course, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack was the one making that announcement and has stated here that the program has been historically difficult to get through the organic certification process, and they're looking to help with that. They plan to put $100 million, invest $100 million into each of the following three initiatives, a new wraparound technical assistance effort, which will include a mentoring program and online resources for that certification process, financial support for conservation and risk management practices to help organic transition costs. This includes conservation planning, reduced costs associated with certification and lower crop insurance premiums, and also the category of establish and strengthen supply chains between producers and markets, which includes processing foods and distribution outlets. So Uh, A big push there, additional funds for those looking to transition into organic. They said the number of applications between 2008 and current day of farms looking to transition into organic production dropped by nearly 71%, and Vilsack's department is hoping to reverse that trend. Well, Tanner, we're going to be hearing some comments today from Secretary Vilsack on the new Inflation Reduction Act coming up here in just a little bit. Some interesting insight behind how the administration got that put together. But switching tracks a little bit here, Tanner, I want to take us over for some international news as Ukraine's Independence Day, I believe, happens tomorrow. And Kiev is on high alert because U.S. intelligence shared with Kiev that Russia could be planning renewed attacks on the capital to coincide with Ukraine's Independence Day. I saw some video footage earlier this week, Tanner, uh, in Kiev, where they had Russian um, missiles, Russian tanks, and other military equipment that they had destroyed. And it was sitting in the streets, and people were celebrating and taking photos in front of it and continuing to vandalize it. But Kiev says that the citizens need to be on high alert because uh, tomorrow marks 31 years of Ukraine's independence from the Soviet rule, as well as six months of this ongoing war with Russia. 
You know, I've been seeing a lot of articles surrounding the health of uh, Vladimir Putin. And I'm yet to find one that I trust enough to report on. So it'll be interesting to see as the next steps unfold for that war between Russia and Ukraine. The next piece of my funding news, Delaney, is a $100 million grant opportunity to the renewable fuels industry looking to bring a new wave of growth. So fuel markets, of course, have been on a downward trajectory since late June, uh, down over 49 cents per gallon at the pump since July. Fuel prices have moved at a rapid pace in 2022 up, and then initiatives were put in place to alleviate pump prices, but they didn't move nearly as fast. So the Federal Register published on Tuesday, they opened an application window for roughly $100 million in grants to expand the sale and use of renewable fuels within the USDA's Higher Blends Infrastructure Incentive Program. That's H-P-I-I, H-B-I-I-P. The renewable fuel distribution facilities can now apply for the HBIIP cost share grants that will help converting their pumps to dispense higher blends of ethanol, ethanol greater than 10%, and higher blends of biodiesel greater than 5%. So again, Tom Vilsack, USDA Secretary, says the funding will strengthen an important industry tool to minimize our reliance on other countries. Biofuels are homegrown fuels, but that's not any new news to our listeners, Delaney. Vilsack said expanding the availability of higher blended fuels is a win for American farmers and the rural economy, as well as hardworking Americans who pay the price at the pump. So good news there for our fans of renewable fuels that we may be able to expand that distribution network. Along those same veins, Tanner, crude oil is following a bounce off the $90 per barrel mark as of Monday. It's having had a pretty solid rally yesterday topping $100 per barrel earlier this week as Saudi Arabia suggested potential OPEC cuts may happen. OPEC says that the cuts may not be imminent and would likely coincide with the returning Iranian production, but regardless, the threat of global economic slowdowns, inflation, rise at central banks... And potential falling crude oil prices had crude oil markets excited yesterday. Yeah, I did uh, see that headline as well. But before we jump into my last piece, let's pause here for a moment from our partner this week, Sitgo Mystic Lubes. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. As stated, the last piece of news I've got for our listeners this morning comes from NASA. So a presentation made at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln on Monday from Karen St. Germain, the director of NASA's Earth Science Division, said that NASA currently has 25 space missions taking pictures of the Earth to measure precipitation in the atmosphere and soil moisture. So NASA is also in the process of developing 10 more missions centered around various information collection processes of Earth 
the one thing that we want to do as quoted says is we're making sure we're building the most impactful systems for the future so we all can be smarter 10 years from now than we are today. We also know that we're seeing changes in the water cycle and that's leading to changes in the carbon cycle as well as changes in agriculture. These challenges are presented in various fashions. She goes, something we are noticing is that wetter areas are getting wetter and drier areas are getting drier. Delaney, I think we've reported on that quite a bit this year as the weather patterns seem to change. But what they pointed out is NASA has uncovered that the energy level on Earth has increased. And they said that the oceans have absorbed 90% of the increased energy. That is what's potentially causing ocean currents to be more powerful and changing our weather patterns. So it's good to know, Delaney, that NASA is watching out for farmers and agriculture. But I tell you what, it'll be interesting if our listeners want to go dig up more information here because the article was very lengthy, uh, but pretty much all encompasses the fact that they are looking to improve the drought monitoring system as well as weather forecasting, which should help farmers better know what their weather environment will be during the growing season. Well, Tanner, I have just two small pieces of news left for today, one of which looking at energy coming into the EU, because as we know, Russia has largely been shut down as Nord Stream 1 and uh, Gazprom both two of Russia's largest gas and nat gas producers have been offline or significantly reduced. Germany announced on Wednesday that they are going to prioritize transportation of materials and equipment essential for energy production on part of the country's rail network in case water levels on the Rhine fall further and hamper shipping. So they're trying to essentially stock up, it sounds like, Tanner. But they said the decree is to ensure that the operation of power stations, refineries, and power transport networks, which need coal and mineral oil as Russian pipeline gas exports have fallen, uh, make sure that they stay completely up to stock or in stock, I should say, as they could face potential nat gas shortages heading into their winter season. And my last piece of news for today, Tanner, is that Vietnam, I didn't realize this, had a homegrown version of African swine fever vaccine, and they've temporarily suspended the use of that homegrown vaccine after dozens of pigs inoculated with the shot died this month, according to their state media. Said there were pigs, about 600 pigs at several farms in the central province area that were injected with this homegrown vaccine, and uh, were a company owned by the Agricultural Ministry, and they have further shut down the use of this vaccine after finding it harmless, or excuse me, after finding it fatal to Vietnam hogs. Oof, yeah, that uh, homegrown is one of those, you use air quotes, and uh-huh. usually use at your own risk. Uh, certainly not something I think we want to put into mass production. But before you get into the markets, I just wanted to bring the attention to our our listeners that the Dow Jones Industrial Index closed down 154 points at the end of the day Tuesday. And as we record today, Dow futures are also down another 24 points early this Wednesday morning. So 
looking interesting. I know some of our listeners enjoy watching those indexes as well. But uh, I'm assuming here, as you get ready to report on markets, it looks like a lot of things are in the green, at least corn and soybeans opening up. It certainly does, Tanner. And corn has been on a little bit of a hiatus prior to the growing season, but corn finally hit a two-month high yesterday on U.S. crop conditions and crop concerns following the drop in crop conditions report and lower yields on the Pro Farmer Crop Tour. So that certainly is adding to the positive sentiment this morning as December new crop corn traded about nine cents higher in the overnight to settle before opening up higher this morning at 664 new crop soybeans in the overnight traded 15 cents higher to close at 1476 and wheat is following that positive sentiment as well as the chicago september contract added nine cents in the overnight at 791 now as we take a look at livestock they are having a little bit of uh different sentiment this morning, mostly due to an increased cost of feed, drought, and some other conditions impacting the cattle markets right now, as well as last week's cattle on feed report. Live cattle seems to be the only market this morning that is trending a little bit higher in the overnight as the October added about 10 cents right around that 144 mark. September feeders down a dollar ninety in the overnight at a buck eighty-two, and lean hogs lower in the overnight as well with the October contract settling a dollar oh seven lower at ninety-two ninety before heading into the opening markets this morning. Tanner, without further ado, Lo, let's take a quick word from Sitgo Mystic before we turn it over to the conversation recorded with Secretary Vilsack. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Before I begin talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, I think it's important to also take a look at what's happened over the last 18 months uh, that impacts and affects investments in rural places. I don't think we've seen quite the level of interest and investment in rural America than we've seen in the last 18 months. Just consider the American Rescue Plan, resources now being provided to the Department of Agriculture that's allowing us to transform our food system, not the least of which is expanding processing capacity, helping existing processing capacity uh, to be able to sell across state lines, new processing uh, uh, grants that are going to be awarded uh, this fall. Uh, this is an exciting time, uh, and that was funded by the American Rescue Plan. Then there was the, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, all that did was to provide resources for forest management uh, to reduce the risk of wildfires and also gave us the resources at USDA, the Department of Commerce, and the FTC to expand broadband access, high-speed Internet uh, to all parts of rural America. Uh, just the CHIPS bill that was, that was recently passed by Congress, uh, when you say, well, what's that got to do with rural America? Well, precision agriculture, all those tractors, all those combines, all those uh, farm implements that have uh, computer systems in them uh, require those microchips. And now we'll have an opportunity as a result of the CHIPS bill to ensure that those microchips are going to be produced here in the United States. That's going to produce manufacturing jobs. Many of those jobs are going to be located in rural communities. The Ocean uh, Shipping Reform Act, uh, basically addressing the issues uh, of unfair practices by some of our ocean carriers, which will allow us to assist 
in continuing to expand on a record level of exports. And now we've got the bipartisan, or excuse me, the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a historic piece of legislation in terms of the investment it's going to make in rural communities across the United States. Let me focus specifically on USDA's portion of this. The IRA is going to provide USDA with nearly $40 billion that will be invested over the next 10 years to improve life and livelihoods in rural communities. Now, when you combine this with all of these other acts that I just mentioned, it really is a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime level of investment. We haven't seen this level of investment, for example, in conservation since the Dust Bowl. What we're talking about is nearly $20 million being funded through this Inflation Reduction Act for climate-smart agricultural practices on farms, ranches, and forest areas. Now, let me break it specifically down in terms of where that nearly $20 billion is going to go. First of all, it's going to go into existing programs, programs that farmers are acutely aware of and understand and appreciate. $8.45 billion of increased funding for EQIP. $3.25 billion of increased funding for the Conservation Stewardship Program. $1.4 billion of increased resources for the Agriculture Conservation Easement Program. $4.95 billion for the Regional Conservation Partnership Program. Another billion dollars for conservation technical assistance. $300 million for conservation technical assistance focused on carbon sequestration. And additional resources for staffing at NRCS. All of that totals $19.45 billion. And as I say, we haven't seen that level of investment in conservation probably since the Dust Bowl. What's this going to do? This is going to help nearly 300,000 farms and ranches across the United States implement conservation strategies on approximately 125 million acres of land. In addition to the conservation investments, the bill also provides $500 million to build out the biofuel blender infrastructure necessary to continue to increase the utilization of higher blend biofuels and also provides additional tax credits to spur the sustainable aviation biofuel industry as it meets its target of 3 billion gallons by 2030 and 35 billion gallons by 2050. There's a significant investment in rural electric cooperatives. The challenge there is to make sure that rural electric cooperatives have the resources to be able to convert to more renewable sources. So this bill provides for $9.7 billion of resources to rural utility services at USDA for loans and grants for renewable energy, zero emission systems, energy efficiency at scale. And this is going to result not just in additional jobs, not just in cleaner burning and cleaner energy. It's also going to result in lower utility costs for Americans living in rural places. It's estimated across the country that utility bills over time could decrease by as much as $800 per year per family. This also provides additional support for the Renewable Energy for America program, enough support to essentially provide additional grants and loans to 41,500 farms and businesses through the REAP program. This is also, as I said earlier, going to help with the biofuel infrastructure program. We estimate that probably 4,600 retail organizations and entities will receive assistance and funding from this additional $500 million. So a tremendous opportunity here. And it doesn't stop there. An additional $5 billion is going to be invested under 
under the Inflation Reduction Act that allows us to continue to do a better job of managing our forests and reducing the risk of wildfire, and also making sure that our forests do a better job of conserving very scarce and precious water resources in rural communities across the western U.S. This is going to amplify and allow us to magnify the work that was announced as a result of bipartisan infrastructure law. So an exciting opportunity and exciting time by virtue of this bill. In addition to all of that, there are also the benefits coming from the bill for farmers who are distressed and farmers who are struggling. It gives us additional flexibility for the first time ever to be able to provide servicing, financial servicing of loans, ways in which we can keep people on the farm, which at the end of the day is part of our responsibility and part of our job at USDA. Well, Tanner, those were kind of Vilsack's first initial remarks, and then he turned it over to reporters to start asking questions. And the first one taken here was to ask how quickly can we actually expect to see these dollars put into effect? The expectation is that these resources are going to be put to use right away because the bill does provide and breaks down by year the level of investment that will take place in EQIP, for example, or CSP. So the expectation is this resource is going to allow us to begin to whittle down the very significant waiting lists that we have for projects that require conservation resources but haven't had a chance to do so because there simply wasn't enough in the regular budget. The beauty of this bill, and I really appreciate your question, it's actually the opposite of what your question might suggest, which is that conceivably this basically creates a circumstance and situation where it could be offset at some point in time. The reality is this, I think, creates greater flexibility with reference to the Farm Bill because it really does address in a very significant way the conservation resources. And so it creates greater flexibility for the drafters of the Farm Bill as they look at additional uses and needs within that Farm Bill that they may not have been otherwise able to do with this resource and conservation as significant as it is. It gives them a little bit more flexibility. So if you talk to Chairwoman Stabenow and others, you're going to find that she believes that this basically is going to be helpful in being able to fashion a Farm Bill that tries to address as many of the concerns as there are out there. So, Belaine, this is a really good conversation overall. So I encourage our listeners to stick around. But what Heath ends up discussing next is what's important to our listeners is making sure that we have a boots-on-the-ground effort. And he explains here how we're going to get that assistance and what that technical assistance looks like. But I think it's important to point out that it also provides for additional resources for technical assistance. You know, one of the challenges we face with reference to conservation programs is the ability to help farmers put the plan together and sort of design the plan and implement it properly. You know, that's one of the reasons why we made the announcement earlier this week about nutrient management plans where we're using $40 million of the Rural Conservation Partnership Program to spur more nutrient management operations on a regional basis. As part of that announcement, we also indicated resources are going to be made available to expand the number of technical service providers and to make it easier and more quickly to certify those technical service providers so that we can get them on the ground as quickly as possible. We're also trying to increase the NRCS workforce so that we have more boots on the ground. I just had a roundtable meeting with Senator Bennett here in Colorado, and one of the concerns that was expressed by many representing farm groups was 
the need for continued investment in personnel so that people are there to help them in NRCS. So we're on top of that, and we're excited about this new opportunity. So the good thing about this, Spencer, is it doesn't require us to go through a lot of rulemaking. Sometimes when you have a new program, you've got to go through rulemaking, and it delays the implementation. This is funneling into existing programs that everybody knows very, very well. The next piece here is Tom's response to a question around the headlines about farmers being part of the carbon issue and not part of the carbon solution. So good information here from Tom. I think that's a consequence of investing in conservation, is that we're going to have an opportunity to make the case that farmers and ranchers and producers are stewards and are deeply concerned about the condition of their soil and the condition of the climate and are, in fact, part of the solution and not part of the problem. And one of the beauties of this bill is it ties very nicely into what I hope to be able to announce in the month of September, which is a series of grants we're going to make under the Climate Smart Agriculture and Forestry Products Partnership Initiative. That was the idea of taking a billion dollars from CCC, putting it on the table, saying to agriculture and to forestry, what would you do with these resources from a pilot project perspective that would result in reduced greenhouse gas emissions or carbon sequestration? Tell us what you would do. Tell us how you would verify and measure the consequences of it and how you would market the products from it. Well, we had an enormous response. Over 1,000 applications for those resources, $20 billion in total requests. So there's tremendous demand for this. So the beauty of this is when we make these projects available, we announce funding for these projects, then as we learn from these projects what works and what works best, we can funnel, we now have the resources under the traditional conservation programs to encourage more and more producers to embrace those practices. So you're going to continue to see American agriculture be part of that very significant and historic reduction of greenhouse gas emissions that's tied to this bill. It's estimated that 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions will be reduced as a result of this bill. Agriculture playing a very critical role and will allow us to essentially meet our requirement or our goal, if you will, by 2030, which allows America also to have, I think, international global leadership in this from an agricultural perspective. So it's really, really an exciting opportunity. And Tanner, this next question was a follow-up to that. I'd say looking at how USDA and other offices are actually going about measuring these climate smart partnerships. Well, we are measuring, and our Office of Chief Economist is working on additional ways of measuring and verifying the consequences of the activities that we're engaged in. And as I said earlier, the Climate Smart Partnership Initiative has with it a requirement that there be measurements and verification as part of this. There are a number of tools that are already available that USDA has helped to produce in concert with land-grant universities that allow us to measure, to quantify, to justify certain conservation practices. So that's ongoing, and that information is going to continue to accumulate and is going to continue to drive us to understand precisely what works best and where, because not everything, obviously, one size doesn't fit all. As has been underscored here as I've been out west, what's happening in the west is a lot different than what's happening in the midwest, which is much different than what's happening in the southeast, for example. So it is very, very important for us to have systems in place that understand that variation among crops, among regions, 
so that we are in a way of being able to give good advice and direction in all parts of the country to all commodity firms. Tom also had a question addressed to him during this conversation that related to the financial stability of, of farmers and what that looks like in relation to these government funding programs. He explains here that uh, he hopes this is a different structure than what historically programs have looked like in the past. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's fundamentally different here uh, because what we're focused on here uh, with what Congress has just done uh, is essentially Congress is saying to USDA, uh, we want you to keep farmers on the land uh, and we want you to work with them uh, if they have loans that are distressed, if they are if they are have loans that are that, that are in which they are finding uh, a, a difficulty in terms of making payments, we want you to use these resources uh, to keep them on the land. Uh, we approximate that roughly uh, somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the farmers who are currently doing business with USDA have a loan that it, it either is delinquent or in the or is in the, or will or has been uh, in the recent past delinquent, which indicates a, a level of distress. We know right now there's a moratorium on foreclosure actions, but that moratorium gets lifted when and if the public health emergency gets lifted. And that can occur sometime this fall. And so what we want is the ability to be able to work with those producers to be able to keep them on the land. Um, and this is across the board. This is not, uh, this is not based on, on, on race. This is based on your, on your distress condition. Um, and I think it's important, and I think it's a tool that we've longed for for some time at USDA to be able to have that flexibility to say um, with a reduced interest rate or with a, a restructuring of your loan, we put you in a position where you can stay on the farm. Uh, and, and that's what this resource allows us to do. We obviously are going to get uh, input from folks in terms of how best to, to, to uh, design uh, the, the effort, but uh, I'm really excited about that opportunity because I think it opens up a whole new, op- a whole new way of helping farmers stay on the land. Well, Tina, that does it for Secretary Vilsack's remarks on the Inflation Reduction Act. He does have a few additional comments to share specifically about the drought and challenges that cattle fa- cattle producers are facing. So we'll be playing those comments along with Ted Seifert's update on Pro Farmer Crop Tour tomorrow on the podcast. So it's great to hear from our Secretary of Ag, especially when He's got insightful comments as such. So stay tuned with us again tomorrow. But for today, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.